Hi, Spring fans. Welcome to a beautiful podcast. I'm your host, Spring Developer Advocate Josh Long, and this show is all about the real heroes behind Spring and its ecosystem. Podcast. How are you this fine Thursday, the 15th of September? Uh, it's been a crazy week as usual, uh, preparing all sorts of cool stuff for the up and coming Spring One show later this year. Uh, coincident with that will be, well, you know, I don't know, I can't speak to the exact timelines, but roughly around the end of the year, you'll see three things. It'll be Spring Framework 6, Spring Boot 3, and Spring One. Uh, not necessarily in that order, but uh, all close enough that, you know, we can celebrate with one big cake. Uh, and uh, there's a lot. There's just so much that's going into that. This is, talk about, you know, the crunch time, right? It is, oh, there's so much. Um, so the whole team, the whole Spring team is just busily preparing for the arrival of Spring Boot 3 and the incredible possibilities that it'll realize. Uh, chief among them is uh, ahead of time compilation, which I think is going to be huge. But I can tell you that I have my work cut out for me. You see, my job, friends, is, as I see it, and perhaps not the way my management chain sees it, but my job, is to work on beautiful ASCII artwork for my applications. Uh, and uh, it's been slow going. I've been here for 12 years and I don't think I've contributed anything um, uh, particularly groundbreaking in the avant-garde of ASCII art, but nonetheless, the struggle persists. Uh, and, but in between my chef d'oeuvre, my masterpieces, I release blogs and videos and do talks about spring. Some of it, not terrible, at least, uh, at least I like to imagine it, it isn't. Uh, but basically, I use my spare time between ASCII artworks to try to help people learn Spring. And I've done a lot of that with uh, something called Spring Native. Spring Native is the forerunner to the AOT support that'll live in Spring Boot 3. But a lot of assumptions that make sense in Spring Native don't make sense in Spring Boot 3. So in effect, you have to unlearn some of the ideas for this to make sense. The component model in Spring Framework 6 and Spring Boot 3 just works out of the box in a lot of scenarios. Suddenly, work becomes easier, and you don't have to count for it like you might have had to do in Spring Boot 2 and Spring Native. Uh, there are countless sort of little examples of this, right? If you want to use a proxy factory to create a CGLib proxy, Spring already knows about that proxy. It created it. Of course, it already knows about it. You don't need to then uh, provide explicit hints to tell it about that, right, I, as you needed to. And it wasn't all that big a deal. It was actually kind of consistent because before, you have to uh, register hints for JDK proxies and for CGLib proxies. Well. Now that Spring has a much more, in, you know, refined understanding of the meta model uh, of your application context, it can do that for you. It just knows. What about code generation, right? Uh, I, I, I think it a little bit droll uh, that um, we went from Spring Roo, which was all code generation with very little runtime um, support, uh, to Spring Boot 3, which now is, uh, you know, mostly runtime. But still, there is some code generation now, right? We've kind of gone full circle. Um, and so the the component model, you know, here is is it's different. It's amazing. And you can also support code generation, which is great, right? Because uh, in Spring Native, there were some uh, things that were being done in terms of code generation, but it wasn't clear how somebody consuming the framework as, a, as opposed to building it could tap into that mechanism. Now it's open for all. The things we used to build, uh, the things that we use to build Spring Boot are the same mechanisms that you can use to build your applications. It's just more consistent that way. Fundamentally, the things that we do uh, and that, that do work right now work better right, uh, than they did before. So where there is parity, it's not actually parity, it's superiority. Um, just because I find these things just to be more robust and basically uh, they 
you know, they actually piggyback on the meta model of the application context itself. The component model is Spring. It's not native code and then Spring later on. It's one unified component model. There are some things that don't work, however, right? Um, profiles and uh, some of the in intuition around conditions are going to be, uh, you're, you're going to need to revisit some of that. Uh, the basic frame of mind uh, you have to have is that Spring freezes the object graph at runtime. There's no way to add objects to the application that's already defined and present at compile time. So things that don't meet with that worldview, like conditionals and, and profiles, are limited or, or don't work at all in the, in the world of AOT. To kind of understand why, you have to, you, have to, you have to know how Spring works. It doesn't care where it gets its configuration. That is to say, at the end of the day, it manages a big bunch of objects for you and makes them available to each uh, of the other beans in, in your code. Um, and this frees your code from construction and initialization uh, and acquisition logic, right? So everything is now nicely decoupled in terms of interfaces. This, of course, promotes testing and a million other benefits. Um, and you can tell it to wire your objects. You can provide the, the information it needs to know how to wire your objects in any number of different ways. It's a pluggable mechanism. It's not easy, but it is something you can plug in, right? Uh, so, for example, XML uh, uh, is the you know, the oldest, most well-known one uh, before Spring Boot. Uh, and then, of course, component scanning and Java configuration post Spring Boot. Um, and you've got Spring Foo for explicit wiring, which in turn is a kind of functional configuration, which is also available to Java developers. So there's all these different ways to define the meta model. Ultimately, all of these mechanisms congeal into a meta model full of bean definitions and the like. At this point, your bean factory post-processors get invoked. Then, once everything has been normalized into bean definitions, Spring goes about instantiating all the objects, calling constructors and setting properties and the like. It's at this point that your bean post-processors and bean-specific initialization logic gets invoked. In the native world, there's the risk of some of this dynamic reflection and component scanning and proxy uh, creation not working at runtime for lack of uh, you know, appropriate configuration. In the Spring Boot Maven plugin, we have a new phase that in turn creates the application context and gets the meta model working, but not much else, right? It just stops at the meta model and then gives your AOT uh, sort of phase listeners a chance to post-process those objects. So there's three that you'll encounter, runtime hints registrar, bean registration AOT processor, and bean factory initialization AOT processor. Uh, and these things have a chance to then post-process your different objects and contribute hints uh, that will then allow dynamic things like reflection and serialization and proxies and what all to work at runtime. So the state of the application context as it exists at compilation is the state of the application context at runtime because no hints have been contributed for anything that wasn't there at compile time, right? So this is why you can see why things like proxies and, uh, you know, uh, not proxies, profiles and, uh, and uh, conditionals, these can be kind of problematic. In the native world, um, you know, you... You want to take advantage uh, of the closed world assumptions, but that does bring and it does imply some cost. It has to be a truly closed world. You need to know exactly what code paths you expect to have run at runtime. So the the result of this is that there are some things that just don't quite work or are untenable. One of them is profiles, obviously. You could, in theory, I guess, uh, activate all the profiles you want to have active at runtime at compile time, but a lot of people have uh, mutually exclusive, exclusive profiles, in which case this is going to be a problem, right? You can't have 
two of the same beans in your application, and that might require re rewrites and so on. So it's better just to ignore profiles. Another thing that's that will work, but with some caveats, uh, are you know conditions in Spring Boot and in Spring Framework four and later. So that's two two versions now. Um, we introduce this concept of a condition. A condition is just a you you say at conditional, put it on the bean definition, uh, and then it points to a condition dot class. You know my condition dot class, which implements this thing called condition. A condition is just a class that evaluates some context and gives Spring um, some idea about whether this object should be created or not, right? So it can evaluate things like, oh, is there another bean of this exact same type in the application context already? Or uh, is a class present on the class path, right? Uh, or, or that kind of thing. But you can also evaluate things, you know, ambient state. Like, for example, um, you know, am I running on a Mac? I guess you could do. Or am I running in a web container? Or is this a Kubernetes cluster, right? And those conditions that you expect to have run at runtime will also get run at compile time. And so, and those beans won't get created if the evaluated test at runtime, um, sorry, at compile time is false. So for example, there's a conditional on cloud platform. Uh, that conditional annotation looks for uh, telltale signs that the application is running in a cloud context like Kubernetes. And it does that evaluation, it does that test, usually at runtime, but now it's going to be done at compile time. So if you want your code and all the Kubernetes-specific uh, logic to exist correctly at compile time, I'm sorry, at runtime, then you need to have that, that those hints, those indicators telling Spring, uh, you know, in what environment you're running present at compile time, right? And in this case, you can just say spring.main uh, cloud platform uh, equals Kubernetes. For example, right, uh, and it'll work. But but still, you know, this is it's just not. In, it's it's intuitive once you start to think about it, right? You cannot have things exist at runtime that didn't exist at compile time in the new Spring AOT world. Regular Jerry, Spring Boot, that'll work just fine. You can still use. You can take your applications written yesterday in Spring Framework five and upgrade them to Spring Framework six with, uh, you know, no change really. I mean, it shouldn't change. Shouldn't change anything really, as far as I know. Um, uh, can Spring Boot might have some new properties or whatever, just like any version of Spring Boot does. But but even there, the basics should still work. I'm just saying, if you're using profiles in the native world, in the GraalVM native image context, uh, then that's where things are going to be kind of interesting, right? Um, anyway, look at me ramble. I uh, I just love this stuff. I love it. I've been swimming in AOT of late. I guess you can tell. Uh, I know slightly more than nothing, uh, but not much more than nothing. I mean, just just a a smidge, a hair, a, a whisker more. Uh, but you know who does know a lot about just about everything and and especially big data? Today's guest, Tim Spann. He's a former Pivot. Uh, he joined Pivotal super early on and quickly garnered my attention because he was always doing these crazy, uh, interesting blogs and demos, bridging apps and big data use cases. Uh, and he's, you know, he moved on to other companies, rodeos, adventures, and so on uh, over the years. And, you know, I, I've always just had this deep respect for him because he's obviously enjoying it. Otherwise, no man would know as much and learn as much as quickly as he does. Um, and it's just really fun to, to, you know, get a chance to sit with him and, and ask questions and learn. And I did this time. Oh, wow. I, I, I think I even talk about it in the video, I, uh, in the recording. I, I, don't, I don't think uh, I could afford the consulting. Um, <laughs> if I had to pay somebody as smart as he is to teach me what he taught us in this episode, 
I expect it would be a fortune. So um, really, what a privilege. I, I cannot thank you enough, Tim, for, for everything you've done to help people in the community and to sit here and patiently answer my uh, uh, drooling questions. Uh, it was great. I learned a ton. I had a lot of fun. I ended up a little bit more dizzy afterwards than I was going to start it. But either way, uh, I hope you enjoy everybody. Again, first of all, for people who are just tuning in, uh, somehow I managed to be half hour late to this to this uh, meeting. So I want to thank you, Tim. Again, really, really, just can't tell you how grateful I am for you being so uh, accommodating. It was completely my fault. Um, can you introduce yourself so that, so that I don't butcher it? Like, who are you, and how do you pronounce your name? And uh, well, yours is easy enough to do, but you know, just introduce yourself in your own terms. In theory, it's easy, right? Uh, Tim Span, though that's pr been pronounced wrong. Sometimes I'm uh, a meat, a pork product, you know, Tim. or email you don't want. Oh, wait, do people sometimes like, those ends go together? Oh, they allied the glyph or whatever, like the, the two ends become so it's T I M space S P A N N. In someone's mind, that happens sometimes. And I'm uh, like, if I had all that Hormel money, man, I would not be doing development. So I'm a dev advocate at Stream Native, covered Apache Pulsar, which uh, sits right in the middle of the messaging space. So I get right. to work with lots of cool tech. We got lots of ways to get data in and out. Uh, obviously, since I used to work at Pivotal, I've got uh, Spring has always got a big chunk of my heart sitting in there. <laughs> so whenever there's a way to throw some Spring into the mix, it's, it's probably going to happen. Right. Yeah. Okay. Good. I mean, a, a man after my own heart. Um, so, okay, let's talk about that. Let, let's go backwards. Cause yeah, I've known you for a long time just because you, you were there in the early days of, I think you were there. How did you join? Like, was it, were you at VMware? It's, it's, no, no, I wasn't, I wasn't old school VMware or spring source or anything cool like that. That would have been cool. You were, you were old school pivotal. You were there in the very beginning. I remember that. I was in New York and I forget what year it is, but I was working at uh, doing spring coding at uh, Barnes and Noble corporate. Cool. And, and one of your uh, sales, top sales guys somehow looked at my blog posts and my demos and stuff that I put out there in meetups and said, you should work for Pivotal as a sales engineer. And I'm like, what's a sales engineer? <laughs> so I had a, a, a sales guy recruit me into Pivotal to do field engineering when I never did it before. So, but it was fun, but Pivotal had too many products back then. Yeah. Like it was spring, it says spring, Cloud Foundry, Hadoop, Hawk, uh, Gemfire, SQL Fire, right. I don't know, uh, Rabbit, Redis, like 40 other things. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and uh, Green Plum. Green Plum, yeah, I don't, don't forget that one. We were heavily uh, invested in data, right? The big data story um, in the very beginning, right? And, uh, well, you know, I think that the, the nature of the data industry, kind of the big data space changed. Uh, a lot around us. Yeah. And so suddenly our huge investment in Hadoop 
didn't make as much sense, you know. Um, you know, Hadoop itself, it wasn't like we, uh, it's not like we, you know, Hadoop became less interesting. So it became less valuable for us to be there, I guess. Um, but, you know, the, the industry has moved on and you see, you seem to have kept on top of it, right? You were at Pivotal doing all this data stuff. You just mentioned a, a bunch of stuff. I mean, I don't even remember all of it. Hawk <laughs> was the query language or something like that on Hadoop. It was it was a query engine that Pivotal wrote on top of Hadoop, and it was really nice. It had a really smart engine to push down all the predicates, distributed it. It was right. kind of like it it combined Greenplum and Hadoop together. It was it was really advanced, but again, I think Pivotal had too many things, and Hadoop was a tough market at the time. Right. Um. There's a hawk. There's also green plum, which is the, it's the, if, if it's not, maybe it's not the first, but it's certainly the most widely known uh, of the do big data and Postgres, you know, spectrum. Right. Um, uh, and I, I, I think that's becoming more popular, right. It's, it's a really big thing. Like you can it, buy it, a ton of people doing that. I mean, and yeah. it works. I mean, it scaled nice and it was regular SQL. Postgres, which is, Great, I love Postgres. You know, um, you, you you it's very hard to beat uh, that UX. You know, if you know SQL, you're going to be happy with Postgres. And if you can get ninety percent of Postgres working for distributed cases like that, or whatever whatever percent that we claim to support, I mean, oh, incredible potential. You know, um, but it's not the only one. What other things out there do Postgres? There's Yugabyte, right? Like distributed big data. There's, there's so many using that engine. And I mean, Amazon has one. Microsoft has one. All right, I mean, true. that engine is just, everyone's like, oh, everyone knows it. Use part of the engine, use the compatibility. Yeah. You know, all the drivers are out there. There's so many add-ons. It, it's amazing, right? Like, who? <laughs> it's the uh, new... New SQL, is that, is that what they're calling it, right? The it's a new SQL because it's new companies that aren't, uh, you know, the traditional people. They're like, hey, we're new, give us money. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but it's all this like, I mean, I remember there's the, I, I don't know, we, we could have a whole discussion about this. Actually, you might be the right person to ask. There was, there was this whole discussion around no SQL. Like, does it mean no SQL or does it mean not only SQL or... You know, and then there's it, it was it was both, and we had when I was at uh, HortonWorks, we put ourselves in a weird position because we're like, here's some NoSQL engines, here's HBase, and people are like, okay, but we want SQL, okay, yeah. so we put SQL on top of NoSQL, and now is it no is it what's NoSQL times SQL equals no yeah. SQL plus? I don't know, yeah. but yeah. Everyone who was NoSQL found a SQL layer somewhere. So right. I guess it, it became from, no, we don't need any SQL, to not only SQL, to, I don't know, now it's like you call your database whatever. There's so many different ways to talk to it. And you got things like Trino that talk to almost anything. Right. Not as It's not as important now. If you can get data in and out, there's probably a SQL layer somewhere. Uh, totally. Even um, even Spanner, right? In the very beginning, Google Cloud uh, Spanner, they had a query language. You you couldn't do, I could be wrong, but I don't think you could do updates with the DDL. You couldn't add data using SQL, but they supported basic queries because, you know, what's the point of launching a big data thing 
without uh, a, a metaphor that people can understand, you know? Um, people tried. Yeah. It's like, oh, I mean, there's some, I mean, obviously like Redis and uh, MongoDB. MongoDB, you know, people are, those got grandfathered or grandmothered in because people already knew that they didn't support SQL. That was, and Neo4j, obviously. Uh, oh, yeah. Couchbase. I mean, these are all uh, Cassandra. I mean, the, well, Cassandra has a SQL thing now, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, they get something. Some SQL or whatever, but it, it, you know. It's so close. You're like. It's ish, you know, whatever. Close, close enough. And actually, that's another thing is like, where, where do we, you know, you look at all these different technologies, there's got to be a compromise somewhere. Because when we talk about SQL, what, they're, what they used to be talking about is my single node, monolithic, MySQL, Oracle, Postgres, whatever database uh, that supported transactions and, and and SQL query language and DDL and relational the relational model. Well, of course now, you know we're starting to tease that apart a little bit, just pushing the boundaries a little bit to find where we can still have most of that while now being multi-node and scalable and accessible and all that stuff. You know, um, and I don't know where it. it hmm. If the thing that has to break is the query language, but you can do everything else, then that is interesting, right? Uh, if if the thing that has to break is you don't get pure horizontal scalability, but you do get 100% like compatibility with SQLs, you know, the, the the query language, maybe that's interesting. I don't know. Like it's just the, I think most people are choosing to preserve the SQL inter interactive, you know, uh, compatibility layer, that that interaction layer. They're they're choosing to preserve that. And, you know, like, for example, adapting Postgres, what is that, what are, what are the compromises you have to make to still support all the things that SQL supports? Uh, you know, what do you have to give up? Do you give up triggers? Do you give up uh, foreign keys? I mean, what do you, you know, I, I always just wonder, I wish they would, I wish all websites had a standard form. All these different databases had a standard form that said, hey, here's the Postgres feature list. Here are the things you're looking for that don't, that don't exist. Right. Um, and, and here's why there's design decisions we had to make. I think you just I think you just put a request out there for someone to build that website. And I think there's someone who listens to your stuff who's going to be like, yeah, why don't I do that? <laughs> that would be an awesome website. Like, what am I not getting? OK, oh. am I OK with that? OK, I'm probably am OK with that. Yeah, probably am. Yeah, it, it's not a bad do thing. I need joins. Mm, do I right. need, you know, is support for weird SQL? Yeah. In, in big data, they kind of cheated. Yeah. There's one project, Apache Calcite, mm -hmm. which is a pluggable. It's used everywhere. Yeah. Like Phoenix, it's used by Apache NiFi, used by a ton of different projects. So you know, oh, this is going to be the, you know, this is going to support all the same SQL. Yeah. So Calcite is a SQL engine that you can put on top of any backend data store. Right. Well, it's SQL parser. I forget what the, the correct is, but it's yeah. it takes the SQL. It doesn't run it. I mean, it it puts it into the right uh, nomenclature to talk to your backend. You got to write that backend translate. Right. You know, whatever translates uh, the grammar into running that. Right. So it's a it's running a front end basically. You feed it SQL and it feeds you. You have to adapt it to your backend. Yes, I I don't know about that part. That part seems to be easier than writing everything yourself. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I mean, I've seen that. I've seen 
people using that, and 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 it looks it's actually a pretty approachable API because it is a you'd think it'd be a very niche thing, you know. Here's a project just for people who want to who want to implement a front end using SQL that talks to some abstract data source that isn't your traditional RDBMS, you know. Um, but it's a very approachable little piece of code. I actually, you know, I, I I can't say I did anything real with it, but I pulled it down, tried to write some code with it, and get something going and you get these callbacks that you know you can use to when somebody asks for something you get notified you can respond to that or you know you can say you know when they do a select all for this here's what that means in my in my world you know uh interesting project so yeah i didn't think what's and one guy one guy <laughs> probably yeah no it's one guy i know he used to work at uh horton works i forget where he's working now but yeah one guy oh yeah that's uh, always i'm always afraid I mean, Apache's good for making sure that there's, I'm sure there's other people involved, but there's, right. you know, when you got one guy, there's 95% of the stuff. Oh, well, at least it seems to be a very mature, like it's, it's stable, it's been widely used and widely cultivated. Uh, there's so many, so many projects using it that uh, I, I don't see that going away. Yeah. Um, yeah, I forgot about that. So, okay, there's there's definitely a market for that. I think Greenplum was one of the original uh, things to try and do that to make Postgres. You know, they took a different approach. They're not, they're not using Calcite, obviously, but yeah. um, but they um, Google Cloud Spanner. Uh, you know, Yugobyte um, and, and Greenplum and, and a few others that I forget that you mentioned one from. Uh, what was it? Amazon. Amazon's Amazon's Redshift. got one, yeah. I, I don't want to. Redshift? I think theirs is Redshift. Is it Redshift? I, I'm not yeah. sure, but I, I that's what lit to mind, and I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, anyway, I, all I, these different ones. Yeah. Um, so what else did we do? We had a, we had that. We had Hadoop. We actually had a Hadoop distribution, which was. I know. I had to sell that. And I sold it to someone, and then we decided to abandon it, and we and we gave it over to our partner, Hortonworks, and eventually they gave me over to the partner Hornworks. And I, I took over the same client. And it was wow. like, yeah, it's a little, little rough when you do that. When you be like, oh yeah, Pivotal, we're gonna support this forever. And like, oh, here's these new guys. But it, it worked out. Hortonworks was a better position, I think. They were at the whatever happened to them? I, they were the biggest name in the world, it seemed like I know. We, have, years, we huh? merged with Cloud Era. Oh right. Oh, okay. Is so Cladera, they're what are they doing these days? Not Hadoop, I imagine. Uh well, it's Hadoop, but you just don't call it Hadoop. I think that's oh, okay. the problem was there was nothing wrong with Hadoop, but you just couldn't call it Hadoop because people are like, Well, now I want to do most of my workloads on the cloud, and you better, you know, Hadoop was great because you reuse the computer to do everything, and now we're like, don't do that. <laughs> Store somewhere. And put the compute somewhere else. Right. So you put it all on one node because that's what you had. And now we pull it apart. Well, so Hadoop had HDFS, right? Like, yes. Which was, I think that will endure long beyond any particular plan or, or, or oh, yeah. compute on it, right? Um, yeah. So they just, it was very easy to move to the cloud because HDFS had a compatibility layer with all the object stores. And I mean, it's pretty much was object store on premise. So you just put that in the cloud, put your data there. Yeah. I mean, there was just, you know, 
some difference in speed when you move from, you know, everything in the same rack right. in your custom built uh, environment to, you know, generic hardware in the cloud. Right. You got to have some caching and extra layers, make sure things don't get lost. Um. So can you, you I, I guess the answer is yes, but I don't know. Can you, can you use HDFS without Hadoop? Surely. I mean, it's just a file system. Right? Yeah, it's a compatibility layer. I mean, but I mean, that that's kind of the key. Like Hadoop was such a, Hadoop is such a big group of projects. Yeah. I mean, it's more of a, more of a concept than, than a, a thing. Cause no one would just like, oh, let me download this Hadoop. Cause you need HDFS. You need something to run it like yarn which you know became pretty much becomes kubernetes you know you need some engines on top of it so you throw in hive spark well so that's something i remember you say you need all those things but i remember it was just hdfs plus hadoop which is MapReduce. that was, was the yeah, it was MapReduce one right and yeah hadoop, and some drivers and then Very they convenient. added then they added MapReduce two and there was yarn, exactly. and there was yarn two, and then so yarn, yet another pig, yet another resource. What is yarn? Yet another resource. Something. Some I don't know what it. We uh, had test on it. I should have remembered. But yeah, yeah. and it, and now they have uh, what's the name of the new one? They've got a new one that's hybrid on top of yarn or on Kubernetes. That's a pretty uh, nice that makes, that again makes as they started moving it to cloud plus you had to add all these extra things but they were all separate anyway like you didn't need a, anything you just wanted to make your own google you needed MapReduce, and you needed a file system right distributed so all this other stuff came after like hive pig and hawk and because people kept telling you we want more <laughs> You're like, oh that's great i could store data cheaply on my servers and run some big distributed apps, but now I want SQL. Right. I want uh, a programming language. I want faster SQL. Like Hawk, Hawk had a really rich set of Postgres SQL level uh, queries. Wow. And people wanted to move over from, you know, old school uh, data warehouse stuff to Hawk. Yeah. You, know, you had all these crazy generated SQLs. That's why people wanted SQL. Because you had all those SQL tools, you got JDBC, you got ODBC, you got all these reporting tools and stuff, reporting tools. Oh my, yeah. And we mentioned data warehouses. My God, <laughs> talk about a, a buzzword for a hot minute. That you know, the we're still dealing with a cleanup of all these data lakes that we, people have created. Well, then you got Lake House. You got Lake House. <laughs> it's different. It's different. Yeah. So what is the difference? Okay, this is not my my area of expertise, but the lake house, and it's got some features I like, as was all these other things, they kept evolving. Like the main thing that evolved on top of HDFS was smarter files that could act as something you could put a database on top of. So you had two competing standards, Parquet, which was Cloud Era, and uh, the heck's the other one, not Avro. This uh, is no thrift. No, not thrift. Thrift's communication line in there somewhere. Um, oh, he's gonna get mad at me because I forgot it. Orc <laughs> ORC, yeah. My old boss wrote it. So oh, cool. those were the two competing standards, and they looked almost the same. Most people do? moved to parquet. 
What do they do? What's that? What the do they do? File, it's a very, there's some limitations when you have a distributed file system. So right. these files were designed to minimize those problems. In fact, they're still used. I mean, they're designed kind of old school mainframe style where you have header that tells you what you can do. And then the data is stored a certain way in a binary format to be faster. And you've got a schema in there and oh. pointers to move yourself through this file. Well, then the file can be distributed among lots of disks and servers oh. and they're reconnected. Well, the lake house is still sitting on top of parquet, but they've added a smart uh, transaction layer on top of it. So it's a lot easier to write and read in and out of it at a bigger scale. So you and can transactionally, you can transactionally commit, you can save a parquet file, which in turn might embed the blob for you know, a Word document or Excel. Well, mo most people are using these for SQL record format. I don't think you're, oh. you're not gonna be joining together a table that has an image and you know part of a text file, unless that text file is in one field. But remember, you've got these, the, the formatting, depending on who's formatting, you know, this is different from relational database where someone may have a, a 64 meg column. <laughs> I don't right. know if you want to, but some people can, or have 10,000 column wide tables. I mean, the HBase people love that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you're like, oh, I've got 8,000 columns. What are you doing with 8,000 columns? Why? Like, I have one table. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah, there's some, but I mean, they're fast. But, yeah. you know, better not do a select all and grab back <laughs> a thousand roads that are 8,000 columns wide. I right. Spring delight. Okay. <laughs> so you got to bring in, so you write, do so you don't just use regular uh if i want to store like my my old nutch cluster <laughs> nutch. remember nutch right if i want to use they did a re i think they rewrote that in uh in uh what the heck they rewrite that in in uh in spark yeah which makes sense that's the processing engine du jour right like um but Okay, but Nutch used to be a Hadoop search engine, a search, like yeah. a full text search engine, right? Lucene on top of Hadoop is kind of how I would think about it. Uh, would I implement that using Parquet files? Um, I'm trying to think if Elastic or Solar's doing that or Lucene. I don't think so. I think they have their own file format. I mean, Parquet is used by, is a default table format for Spark. Okay. Link. Uh, who else? Most people. I'm looking at the list here. And then they put uh, the uh, Spark people put Delta Lake on top of that. So you could do some more advanced features. Like if you look at the the features that Snowflake has, right? they pretty much opened them, put them in the open source with a lake house with this format. But underneath it, you still got to have files that get saved to those object stores in the cloud. So this is the file format with some extra features on it. And it it works nice. Like with Pulsar, we have a sync. Data comes in, I just stream it into these files. You know, they support a lot of the features that you expect in, you know, in a data warehouse, but it's just files in a big uh, lake. So you get the performance and features of a data warehouse, but that scalability and the 
simplicity of uh, you know just having uh, a single local file system. Yeah, which is nice, and, and you know integration with everything there. Nice. Okay. Um, okay. So could I? But it supports transactions. Like it. Like I can have multiple chunks separated across multiple nodes with one parquet file managing references to them all? Is that the idea? Yeah, I don't know how that works. <laughs> but I mean, because I haven't tried all the features. The one feature that looked funky to me besides transactions is support for something called sharing. So you can hmm. share, you have a, like a sharing server that shares your data out as if it was, a, you know, an API. And then, mm -hmm. you know, people could just pull into it. Because that's, again, something they learned from... Uh, the snowflake stuff. What is snowflake? Oh, yeah. Well, snowflake is a is a cloud data warehouse that is worth a lot of money. They have a ton of like every everybody in the world now has like a snowflake database because it's really easy to do. You go there, press a couple of things, and now I've got a data warehouse. And they've separated the compute and storage really nice. So you could just easily go, oh, I need to have more people have access to it, or I need to make it faster. They just get uh, more compute, don't have to scale up the storage. Is it uh, a software as a service, or is it a Apache project? What is it? No, no, it's it's a closed source uh, uh, cloud uh, service. But and it's it as Spark? We don't know what it uses. <laughs> but I mean, what is it? If I were to position it, what what, what would I use in the open source world, open source world instead of it? Uh, Delta Lake plus Spark. So what is Delta Lake? Delta Lake is that lake house, which is you put these files on top of object storage, and then you've got Spark and other APIs so you could use this if as if it was, you know, as if it was a really big Oracle. Oh. But I don't. I don't see people using it as, you know, transaction space, you know, okay. like I'm not going to save my uh, SAP data warehouse to one of these, but, you know, analytics cluster, you know, fast data come in, a full rich SQL. Cause I mean, that was the problem before with Hadoop, right? You kind of had that rich SQL and Hawk was really close. Right. Like some of these technologies kind of, you know, where Hawk should have gone to. But you know, you know, it's easy to say that now. With you know, hindsight being twenty twenty and all, ten years later or something. Right, and so my frame of reference, I'm as I'm talking to you, I'm realizing how distinctly dated my uh, perspective on all this stuff is because I just don't know. There's, there's a lot of projects, and they change constantly. That's right. why it's difficult for people out there because you got, you got, you like, well, what language do I keep staying with Java and Spring? They're evolving a lot. So you got to watch all those APIs. And you're like, what database do I use? Yeah. What message queue do I use? Right. Where do I put my main data for all my analytics? Do I put them in a data warehouse, in a cloud data warehouse, in a lake house, in Hadoop, in some funky storage system? There's so, so many options. Uh, let's, uh, so, okay. I think you've done, you've already given definitions for all these things, but let's just put do all do them all in one place so I can kind of do a compare and contrast. Uh, a, where, a data warehouse is just a, I just think of it as being HDFS with some data in it, right? Like, Well, 
I mean, it, there's all these theories. Like data warehouse originally, they had these star schemas, and you had to model your data a very specific way. And there was companies that sold database engines that were just for doing data warehouses because you had, you know, you designed your database very specifically. You had fact tables and and things where you had to place your data in there a very certain way. So you took your data you had in your transaction systems and you did batch loads into them. Right. These were things like Teradata, where you bought mm -hmm. an appliance, you know, special hardware that ran super fast and gave you rich SQL, but the tables were a very specific format. You had to do these batch loads and you bought these giant refrigerator servers sitting in mm -hmm. your system. They were beautiful looking. And that was data warehouse for a while. And people go, well, do we need the special hardware? And they start, like, that's where Greenplum came in as a data warehouse. Right. You know, because you want something that could be fast and run SQL and not necessarily be the SQL that's your, you know, powering your apps and your SAP, but powering your analytics and your queries. I mean, the problem now is, well, people want that all the data live constantly for all your queries. So is it an analytics database? Is it transactional database? Is it a data warehouse? And then they started melting. Then Hadoop came out because people saw good Google to do those searches and they go, hey, we could put a lot of data in here. Right. But how do we get it out? No one wants to write MapReduce. That's <laughs> brutal. I right. mean, it worked, but you know. So then you have all those different query engines like Hawk and Hive and Impala going on top of Hadoop. Yeah. And then once cloud is everywhere and you could get everyone agreeing that cloud's safe enough, you know, cloud blew up. So you yeah. got all these different data warehouses moving to the cloud. And then some people like, well, this is a cloud database. This is a cloud data warehouse. And then, you know, you got things okay. like Spark come in to get your data processing and ETL really fast. Okay, so would it be fair to say that a, a data warehouse is, you know, conceptually you could still use SQL for it, and people do, uh, but the focus there is not on live on-demand uh, transactions more than it is, more more so it's reporting on data and and drawing inferences from aggregations of data and uh, yeah. you know and doing that fast. And doing it for large amounts of it. Like more, the yeah, more query than, you know, like these may be insert only databases in some of them. Right. Like insert and query. I care about fast queries. You right. know, the data could take a while to get in there. I don't need to update it. I'm probably not deleting it. I just want to run some crazy queries, you know, like show me, you know, everything for the last three quarters and, you know, all right. these different dimensions of data. And it was very formal. But then so the, people go, that's too much work. <laughs> to but the, the focus there is, uh, the focus is I can drop some of the, uh, like I don't care about, eventual consistency is not actually a problem with a warehouse because it's not going to be live more. So it's going to be slightly older, maybe a little bit out of date, but. Yeah, again, now you see your problem. <laughs> exactly. No one wants, you know, 10, 20 years ago, you know, the day the data is a week old, a day old, an hour old, and people are like, that's great. That's right. recent data. Now people are like, you're a record behind. <laughs> right. That's where we're coming in with the streaming. Like, 
people want the data as it as it's born. An event happens, some goes into a log, someone saves something. You know, tw- I now I'm using like 50 cloud systems. Thanks, Pivotal. And you know, <laughs> so you have all these all these different sources of data, and people are like, I want all these now. The problem is you're going to query 70 things. Uh, You can. I mean, there's tools to do that, but most people take it, drop it where it's cheap, drop it in object storage, and then you put a a lake house on top of that. So that's your Uh Delta Lake, but that's also because it's, you you know, where we live, there's three competing specs on that. So you've got Delta Lake, you got Apache Iceberg and Apache Hootie, all came out of big players who needed to solve this problem. But now you've got three different uh, ways to do this, three different uh, formats and ecosystems around them. Oh, of course. Okay. That's, okay. that's just the storage part. That's the storage and get to it. You still got uh, us in Pulsar and the Kafka people going, well, we got to connect this data to get it over there and to get it over there and to feed it to Spring Apps and to feed it to a Python app and to get it to a data warehouse and to, you know, get it between different systems at, you know, at scale and do things in order, all all this kind of fun stuff that now that the data has to be live and has to keep moving, you know, you got to get it off your devices as fast as possible. Oh, okay. So, okay, data warehouse is not the same as a database. It's a place where you can throw all the data for to optimize for query. And reporting and, and analysis. Yeah, data analytical database, I think they call it. Yeah, and, and a, a lake house is uh, some convention where you make the things that are being stored in the data lake. Um, sorry, data lake is just, you know, data that you can process with a data warehouse. Um, or or some house. data tool. I mean, there's so yeah. many options. And a, and a lake house in particular is what that smart data being stored it's, in the where in the data it, lake. It's take the best of both of them, put them together, and put them at scale. Because okay. data warehouse very structured, right? You had to put yeah. it and to have this fact table. It goes like this. You load it. You got to load it consistently. If I'm going to load, you know, a lookup value, I have to load that value, then all the values that need it in a special order. It might take you a day to build this thing. You know, maybe faster in newer systems, but right. very specific. The original uh, data lake was, it's S3, maybe HDFS. It's a thin layer on top of that. Put in, like you said, a PDF, a text file, you know, JSON, Avro, right. XML, you know, then ORC. Then, and then people goes, well, I've got something that could store a lot of data, distributed, and I could access it. Let me make it into a, our, a data warehouse or a database or whatever you want to call right. it. So your query engine on top of this data, obviously, if you want to query the data, it better look like a table, right? Right. But JSON looks like a table. XML looks like a table. Right. Avro looks yeah. like a table. So some people want to query that raw data and leave it there and go, well, don't change it. But querying JSON isn't as fast as querying a custom binary format. So that's why you get it into Parquet or in a Delta format. Oh, okay. So is Parquet kind of like um, coherence 
POFs or uh, portable object format or Gemfire has something like that? It's kind, of, it's kind of like you write a database inside of, you put the storage layer in a very specific format so it'll be fast and extensible. Because remember, the other problem is when I'm writing to S3 and when I was writing to HDFS, it was pretty much write once. So append only. So I appended the file there and I can't change that. I can't delete it, put it back. And you appended it. Then you got to append another one. So yeah. the format's got to support adding rows by appending them. And if you want to do updates and deletes, they're basically setting flags everywhere. Right. So it's a very complex process to make this work. I see. Okay. Okay. So now um, we've got these. That's why I don't work there. That's a lot. That's hard. People doing that stuff. That's hard. Yeah. Uh, so, so, okay. We've established you know, because I I live on the app side, right? I care about uh, the online live, you know, uh, part of the equation. But for for all the data that these little apps pull in, they have to go somewhere. A lot of times that might be your like your database, but even that might be just a, a storage, a storing house, a clearing house for the data that eventually gets imported into the data data warehouse for analysis and you know query and all that stuff, right? So there's a there's a there's more to the data than just what what your app is doing with it. Hopefully, in most organizations, but that does bring up a point, which is that there's two different there's like a, a there's this data where data warehouse data lake in the middle of your organization pulling in all the data from all these different apps, um, and those apps are feeding into that right and, and feeding out right. I mean, a lot yeah. of your apps are going to take a feed from this data that's maybe an aggregate right. or your data needs the most recent version of something maybe this is where it's aggregated together because you know your app produces you know the weather in the, these three these three fields right. but you need the weather from some other system and those are maybe aggregated in the warehouse or you could join them together and give you another feed this is where <laughs> the complexity lies in is how do I get data in and out right. in a fast way that's not tied to any particular language and, you know, could do it fast and can, you can isolate yourself from knowing, oh, today we're running Delta Lake, but then tomorrow someone's going to go, oh, we're moving our architecture to some other, other thing because Lake House just came up. Maybe there'll be something better comes out and we're going to move everything over there. So now you rewrite all the apps, yeah. you know, that's, it, that's that's where really the messaging and pulsar comes in is isolating that those layers because the the more isolation the better you have when that stuff changes or moves so you don't have to know make it easy for the app app knows i push it into a topic it goes where it needs to go and if that changes in the future who cares or if it needs to go to two places maybe it has to go to a relational database and to the lake house right or maybe you get feeds from wherever it is and it could just be wrapped. So this is the canonical problem today, which is integration, right? The integration of data across these different apps and, and through the data lake. And obviously there's a lot of uh, options here. You know, the, the we have things like, I mean, you could do it at a low level, but I think if we're doing this kind of stuff, we talk to people about Spring Cloud Dataflow, which is one way 
of solving some of this stuff. Um, but it's very much like old school in enterprise integration plus plus it's data and integration, right? It's a new, it's a, a new vertical. It's not exactly the same as the old style style ESB, EAI, whatever, but it's in spirit. I feel like there's conceptually a lot of like common ground there. Um, of course, you, if you talk to the folks over uh, at Coherent, they're going to talk about, you know, um, uh, stream processing, right? Stream, uh, you know, Kafka streams and and, yeah. uh, and the like. And of course, you can use Spark. A lot of people use Spark to do that kind of live processing, and and you take data, do analysis, and then send it out somewhere so that it lands somewhere the app can get it, right? Um, uh, and now, of course, we have uh, Apache Pulsar, which is, uh, I think. But it's a broker. Is that fair? It's a. It's yeah. It's a broker. It's a bus. It's a channel. It's a pipeline. Yeah. I mean, those stream processing engines take and put data into Pulsar. So we're just the we're just the pipe. I okay. mean, we've got our own little functions that are kind of like, uh, you know, like database triggers. So you could do a little bit of processing, but the main processing happens outside of Pulsar. You know, it happens in Spark or in Flink, or any anyone else that can grab data from a pipe, or we could push it to them. Is or NiFi they could talk still a thing? Sockets, wrist. Does NiFi still work? What does that do? Oh, yeah, NiFi. We just, uh, yeah, that connector works real nice. Does that, I, I haven't really heard much about NiFi recently. Is that still used? Is it a popular thing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's used in a lot of places, uh, especially in the government, because it's, you don't have to write much code, which is nice. Right. And it's also very uh, dynamic. It reminded me a lot of Spring XD with like a little more uh, ability to scale out in a yeah. nicer GUI. Yeah. And you could change flows live while they're happening. Yeah. So you could go to a dashboard and go, oh, this shouldn't go to, don't drop this in S3, drop this into, you know, uh, a database, you know, or drop this into Cassandra. Right. Yeah, just drag and drop things. It's kind of cool. That is cool. Okay, so stream processing is set, uh, secondary, but you need a you need a a bus. You need a the data. Yeah. yeah, you need a data Something bus. To, you need a pipe through which this. Okay. And you don't want to so, just have you don't want to have a synchronous connection. You don't want to have you know just an HTTP connection. No. You want something that is multiplexed, is right. secure, and is able to be used by everybody. So, you know, I could have my Spring app talk to Python or Go or Rust or Kotlin or to Spark or Flink and not have to worry about, oh, you know, are they going to be able to figure out how to get this out? Are they going to know what the data looks like? You know, what if I decide I want the data to be exactly once in order? You know, mm -hmm. do I have to do something special for that? What if I want it shared that way? and shared another way at the same time, then just the Pulsar pipe handles that for you. Okay, so would you, is Pulsar, would you put it in the same category as something like a Kafka? It's, uh, it's, it's kind of like Kafka plus RabbitMQ together. Oh. But with a, with a separation of compute and storage, like Kafka, compute and storage are on the same node. Rabbit right. tends to be same thing. This compute is separated from storage. There are so two the different is, layers. Is compute, compute is, you know, the routing, 
handling okay. where you are in the messaging, doing all the translation of, you know, who gets what message, that sort of thing. And this is also supports multi-tenancy. So I set up a tenant and a namespace and the topics, and then makes it very easy to divide up where things go, secure them. That's nice. It's also, we support multiple protocols, which is how I was using Spring before. So I'm like, I'll use the Kafka driver. I'll use the MQTT driver. I'll use the AMQP driver. I'll use the WebSocket driver. And just Pulsar supports all those. It makes it very easy. You don't have to, like you take an app that uses Rabbit and maybe you go, like, people go, hey, we're moving to the cloud. We don't have a cloud Rabbit. Or I want the, the that app to now communicate to the same thing that the Kafka app does. You yeah. know, like as you try to make one integration path, as opposed to having like 15 different messaging systems in the middle and then figure out how to pipeline them all together. So yeah, you push it into a pipeline and then whoever wants the data subscribes to it. We give you different right. ways to subscribe to it, whether it's exactly once like Kafka or it's shared. So you could be a work queue or any of those complex kind of JMS messaging schemes you might have. Like a topic. You're like, I want to support, get it this way, but I want seven people to share it and, you know, push it to me or make me pull it or all this kind of nonsense. You can do all that with the same, with Pulsar. With with one, yeah, with one messaging system that scales out pretty big. It's used in China for some petabyte level systems. So, I mean, this has been around for a while. Pulsar came out of Yahoo. Oh, so what about uh, Apache RocketMQ? Rocket MQ is similar to uh, we have a driver for that one. Okay. But again, that's more traditional messaging. Again, that's kind of the thing is like there's the messaging style with Rabbit, JMS, and those that yeah. kind of usually are just app to app communication. Right. They usually don't do anything with semantics. They usually have one node or a main node and a backup. Right. You know, we scale out like Kafka does, but we have the separation of compute and storage. Storage is in Apache Bookkeeper, which is a, a a fast database to handle storing the messages and then built-in tiered storing the storage to the cloud. So now mm-hmm. I could, if I want to push it to S3, I get too big, just push your messages there automatically. Okay. Oh, so the storage, okay. So the storage is a separate piece of software. Yeah, it's a separate layer. So you've got... Pulsar brokers doing all the, okay, who gets what, who subscribed, right. route people to the right place, security, and then messages get stored in Bookkeeper. And if you make the decision that you want it into tiered storage, it'll handle doing that for you. The brokers will make sure you get your message. And right. then there's on the side is uh, something to handle metadata. It could be Zookeeper, it could be etcd, could be RocksDB depending on uh, where you're running it and your platform. So, wow. Okay. So this is, there's a lot of moving parts to this, but the idea is that there's it's a lot of moving be, parts. But, but, well, I mean, these are all bulletproof, tried and true rocks. Yeah. Rock we've solid. been very large scale companies like Flipkart and, you know, yeah. Splunk, big, yeah. big infrastructure companies. Okay. And, oh, and so this is Apache. This is an open source thing that, you know. Apache Pulse are all open source. What's nice uh-huh. is all these features are out of the box. There's no like, oh, let me get the enterprise edition to do that. Right. right. So that's, the, yeah. we're still, we're still 
open source. Yeah. Yeah, it's it seems like it's becoming rarer and rarer these days, you know. Uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we don't get to that point where we got to put yeah, Amazon hasn't stolen our stuff yet, so <laughs> that we know of. Yeah. Um, well, because you you can there's some people using Pulsar but not telling people because you could turn on the Kafka protocol and people won't know that you're a Pulsar broker there. So it can look wow. like you're running just a Kafka cluster and you're like, oh, they're just running Kafka. And underneath is Pulsar. That's cool. Oh, so there's actually built-in interoperability there. Does it support AMQP? Yes. Oh, uh, cool. 092 or 091, 092 and 10. Oh, wow. All three. So, okay. Yeah. They're... There's there's different modes. But what's nice is the infrastructure in Pulsar was set up that the uh, protocol for communications is pluggable. So right. the Pulsar one that's native is no different than the AOP one or the uh, the Kafka one or the MQTT one or the Rocket one. You just use that same same protocol, plug it in there, boom, Java app. Which means that you could also, um, you have a, a rich enough backbone uh, conceptually to support the kind of routing that AMQP uh, allows the idea of a, a routing a routing layer that then forwards on to some other exchange based on some algorithm that you plug in and all that stuff that's pretty cool and it's flexible enough to support that um yeah, which is which is nice i mean i'm sure you can find some edge use cases that might be weird but you know maybe uh, but i mean okay so does that mean i could have like when I, if i write an app and i write and i send a, a message into pulsar am i sending it into whatever, this pipe, this channel, this destination, this topic, whatever, whatever you want to call it, I send a message into it. Logically, is the thing that I send a message to the same as what I consume it from? Or is there a it's, different... It's the same broker. I mean, most people have multiple... Mailbox. Yeah, you'll be calling the same thing, but you'll specify a tenant, a namespace, and your topic. And that's where you're going to be sending it to but that could be through the Pulsar protocol or Kafka or any of the other okay. ones. And someone consuming it will point to the same topic, but they'll make some subscription decisions. Like when I subscribe to that topic, I could decide that I wanted a shared connection so that if I share it with a hundred instances of my app, I'll get a message. Someone else will get a message and whoever gets it first, they get it, they process it. Great. You can't do that in Kafka. That's not Kafka design. We yeah. could go in exclusive mode where only I can get it. I yeah. subscribe to it with my subscription name. I'm exclusive. Now you can have as many subscriptions as you want, but for that one named one, I'm exclusive to get that. Okay. So you can have it so it's, you know, in order. That's how you can do things like guaranteed exactly once and in order. Nice. It's based you on your subscription. Can you do deduplicate, like deduplication yeah. of, you can do canonical header. Yes, and there's support for adding properties. There's support for keys. Keys are very important because we also have another way to have subscribe to data is key shared. So if you want it kind of like Kafka, but kind of not. So whoever has that key, they are going to get that exclusively. So if okay. I have a key, say that key's a table, that client's going to get all that on their subscription. Next key goes can go to a different one. So you can kind of have the best of having a work queue and an exclusive in order 
stream there. Wow. Um, okay. I, uh, and the Spring Library is almost almost out of experimental stage. We'll get to that in a second. But what I was trying to figure out here next is, could I build an app where I write data to a Pulsar destination, and, and then I build another app that consumes it, and then could I like introduce something in the middle later on without breaking the producer and the consumer? Yes. That's what I'm trying to like. Producer and consumer not connect. They're decoupled. Okay. If you share a topic, a common thing is push it into a topic. And remember, I mentioned those functions. Have a function as events come into the topic, have it do some extra bit of uh, routing. Maybe maybe convert things between schemas or look at the data, maybe do a lookup and send it to another topic. But as many people want to consume that original topic can, like maybe I have a topic for raw data, then I tran- then I do some transformation on it, turn it from JSON to Avro, or add some fields, drop some fields, change some types, you know, enrich the data, and then have that come out into another topic, someone consume that. Or someone produces the topic one, someone consumes topic one, and then you go, I want someone else to do something. Consume on topic one from another app with a different subscription name. They've got their own dedicated stream of that data. And you do what you want. Maybe you put it into another topic when you're done. Again, that's tend to how we do a pipeline, add topics, because we can support a lot of topics. Because yeah. of the tenant namespace, it doesn't get too busy. I mean, we tend to keep it 10,000 or so topics per namespace. Other than that, it gets a little messy, might slow down. But, you know, millions of topics, not a big deal because, you know, tenant one, you know, you know, this line of business, all the namespaces for that line of business. So you don't have to have a lot of different clusters. You could have one cluster and have a thousand different uh, apps on it without a problem. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Wow. And share Spring app produce data that's used by Spark or a Spark app reading the data and also a Spring app, maybe doing it differently. You know, maybe one does it intermittently, one's doing it continuously, one's doing it micro batch. Right. Or continue or read it differently. Like I've got a Spring app, I push it in Pulsar and I read it out AMQP using the Spring Rabbit uh, library. Then use right. the Spring MQTT library, use the Spring Kafka library, Spring right. WebSocket library, read it all coming from the same space. Wow. Because so cool. then you don't have to use a certain library. So you could use Pulsar and yeah. never learn it. And that's not a great thing, but you know, you can. Well, I think there's okay, so the uh, you're gonna at some point as a as a as you deploy the solution. You just mentioned the functions. How is that written? Do I contribute a job? Like, how do I yeah, write a function? Unfortunately, it's not Spring, but uh, we support Java, Python, and Go. And okay. you write a function. You could either write a native Java function and use that generic function uh, style, or we have an SDK that gives you some extra features because we give you a context object, which lets you... Uh, access uh, some uh you know global storage and right. get access to uh creating topics on the fly 
Right. So say data comes in and you look at it and go, oh, someone's sending me new data I've never had before. Let me create a new topic um, based on that metadata because you could just throw that in a property or just look at the data. So I could dynamically route stuff out. So you just write a very simple Java or Python app or Go. I tend to use those two. And then the deployment is uh, command line or REST and it just gets pushed out to an environment. Right is now you are. It's for Java, it's a jar. Well, actually, we put in a NAR file, which is the NIFI formatted jar file that has some extra metadata in it. Okay. But I mean, it just it just goes in your Maven or Gradle to build it. Is but, it okay, there is a Maven plugin for NAR. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it, it does that nice. The, the uh, And then you could either deploy it to the Pulsar broker or to a local environment or to Kubernetes. Now, this would be nice if we published this. Oh, I don't know, Cloud Foundry, but that's you guys got to look at that because it'll deploy to any Kubernetes. And we put yeah. something we call Function Mesh, which yeah. is an open source thing to with Helm charts and operators to make it easier to manage these pipelines. But, yeah. you know, we're not married to it, but I mean, could because you could deploy it any way you want. Yeah. So and then it's if people are using Tanto application platform with the Kubernetes, uh, then they could just use, they could manage this all from there, it sounds like. Yeah. Wow, okay. Um, I, I tend to write them in Java and Python, but. Yeah, I mean, I Python seems like it'd be nice because it's just on the fly, easy little embeddable scripts, throw those around quick, you know? But uh, on the other hand, I do like the idea. Like, is there some central, is, is the function once it's deployed, um, I called it function. Uh, it, it does kind of remind me of a serverless. It, it is really similar to an yeah. open source uh, serverless framework because, you know, yeah. your function runs by itself. It just takes input and output and you specify right. it when you deploy it. So right. if I say all these topics now go into this function, it gets registered in Pulsar. So it knows anytime an event comes in, I'm going, it's going to go into that topic and that topic is going to trigger that function. So yeah, like AWS Lambda, it's just going to run when that happens and its output is whatever you want it to be or it could be nothing. But yeah. does, does Pulsar keep that jar loaded in memory for the entire life of the deployment or does it get recreated each time as a new message? It, it's, it's stored in memory if you're running in the broker. If you run it in function mesh or somewhere else, that's up to your infrastructure, how you're going to run it. Oh, wait. You, oh, okay. I didn't quite understand that. Okay. So you're saying you can, the function, the pipeline can be told to call a function somewhere else? Well, what happens is the, the func it's registered within Pulsar, but yeah. it doesn't have to run within Pulsar. The, you have to have something that can run functions. We, we have an example of that with function mesh. Otherwise, it runs within the broker and it's got a dedicated space, either okay. in uh, its own dedicated JVM or in a Python uh, process. There's a process way to run it, a thread way. Things get complex when you have to manage all that. But the way it's set up, there's no reason why that couldn't be plugged into something like uh, Cloud Foundry or something else. Because, wow. I mean, Function Mesh mm -hmm. kind of does that now. And it just needs that communication. Like Pulsar server knows to call it over a, for a specific set of topics 
at that time. Obviously, the further you spread these things out, you know, slower. So the scaling of that function is up to either Pulsar if you deploy it in the broker, or it's up to like function mesh, which is a separate yes. thing. What is the and it's designed that? to run as many as you need to, like how many instances you want to run. And I mean, that could dynamically go up and down again, especially in Kubernetes, based on how you want to run this. Is the, So this operator about which you spoke earlier, does that automatically handle like, you know, I've got Q depth uh, at this topic, and I need to add more nodes or... or I, I, don't, I don't think the project's gotten that deep yet. I'm trying to think if they've added all those fancy i'll give you the link so you could uh, take a look Thank you. i mean it definitely can use some love i mean it's yeah. still pretty new for us and we're putting uh, some things in there the one thing i didn't mention about functions is an extension of functions is how we do our sources and sinks right so when event comes in you know if you if you uh registered a sync you know it'll automatically go to that Wow. You know, when it comes into an event. Wow. Okay. Okay. So next, can I, when I run this function, let's just take the first example of it. It's deployed inside of uh, Pulsar. It's stored in memory. It's, that means you load the function into, into the Java class loader and it's not unloaded next time. It's right? not so, unloaded unless you reload it or specified or restart it. Okay. If you run in the Pulsar broker. I did, I'm pretty sure that's what the uh, function mesh one does as well. When sure. it's running, it keeps it running. That makes sense. I don't want to scale down to zero. Yeah, and it's just a function. It doesn't have state, state that's outside of. We keep state. You can access state via calling. Remember that the Apache bookkeepers are data store. You can access state from there. Yeah. Uh, through the uh, context object, but. But does the, is there some way for me to contribute something that does stay resident in the Java class loader beyond the beyond any any invocation of the function like for example a spring application context that i'm not sure there's that i don't know i haven't i haven't tried that like if i have oh that's the other thing can i deploy dependencies like is the nifi jar yeah yeah well we get jar? it makes you know the big fat jar yeah okay so it's got the dependencies. that's part of the the nar format is a smart way to put those together and that comes from the nifi project because yeah. those are all independent uh, components. So it kind of works similar to that. That's why I think they took that style. That's cool. That works. Um, it gives a new new meaning to the term gnarly. <laughs> but um, it, it's, it, it makes it really easy for the developer. I mean, you push it out there. Especially yeah. if like, sometimes they get data that comes in and go, oh, that's ugly. Do I want to give that... Like if I just take like sometimes I grab a rest feed and it's nasty Jason and I'm like well let me shove it into a topic and I'm like does anyone want to read that and look <laughs> with all these weird fields I'm like probably not I'm mm -hmm. like do I change the source thing which maybe I have access to maybe I not or just add a function that puts it into another format puts it into a schema and then puts it into another cleaner topic so I got the oh, raw nice. topic and a clean topic. Uh, Pulsar has a built-in schema registry. Okay. It uh, easy. It's uh, JSON, Avro, Protobuf. Again, extensible for other ones. Yeah. You need it. Okay. So the, the oh, that's a good point. The messages in the wire, um, 
do I need to speak a particular protocol? If I'm using AMQP, for example. Just use that protocol. I, but I can just send any blob of bytes. It doesn't have to be a particular it's, By default, messages are, are binary. Okay. It's a blob with a little header on it. And okay. then when it comes in, we know what that format is from, from AMQP or from Kafka. And right. we'll make sure that that's honored, but stored in a way that's native to Pulsar. I see. Comes out the other end looking the way you okay. want. That's uh, kind of a pain. I, right. I've seen the examples of telling people how they have to do that. And it's from the implementer, not fun. You're yeah. using it. You know, you're like, oh, whatever. <laughs> Send mm -hmm. it a Kafka message, comes out the different message. Well, that's cool. It, it's just, it's integration code. I mean, it's, it's stuff that, you know, like I said, it's this is the hard stuff, but it's the it's the unglorious stuff that keeps the internet moving, you know, is, is integration, translation of one thing to another, you know? If the people writing the code in the middle are unhappy, but everyone else around them, like right. using this Pulsar as glue or Pulsar as a Swiss army knife is very nice. Mm -hmm. Because how do I get data from a Spring app to a C++ app that's running on a on a Jetson Nano? Pulsar. You know? That's pretty easy. You tell me, like I've got uh, some devices that only speak MQTT, like uh, literally have one in my hand. This only <laughs> speaks MQTT. Right. Well, so I just pointed to the Pulsar server that's running MQTT. It doesn't know. <laughs> doesn't right. have to know. I don't have to rewrite the code or go track down a vendor and say, hey, publish Pulsar messages. And they'll be like, uh, no, we wrote this in 1987. It's not changing. <laughs> Um, okay, well, this gets us to then spring, right? <laughs> uh, Finally. Long, it's a long circumlocutus way around. Uh, in August of this year, 2022, uh, the good, the great, the amazing Sobi Chaco uh, announced uh, experimental support for Apache Pulsar. So, um, yeah, it's a new project. Uh, it's popular, mess you know, it integrates with the popular messaging system, obviously. And we've got a lot of messaging integration in Spring, I mean, even Spring Framework, forget about Spring Boot and Spring Cloud Stream and all that stuff. Yeah. Even Spring Framework, we have, um, we had JMS from like the get go, right off, right out of the, right out of the gate, twenty years ago, you know, uh, and and then eventually uh, we have a Spring Data Project, and there's Redis support there for PubSub, and then we have uh, Spring Integration, which is a whole framework dedicated to messaging style integration. Uh, so you know, every popular technology out there has a, a integration there, and then we built Spring Cloud Stream. Uh, and then there's also separate projects, Spring for Apache Kafka and Spring for RoutingQ. Um, and Spring Cloud Stream itself sits on top of all that. And it's an abstraction for binders. Basically, it gives you this concept of binders, which lets you talk to any PubSub style system in a consistent fashion. Uh, basically, you just write functions, right? A function to produce and a function to consume the result of data going in and out of these binders, right? Uh, so. Spring loves messaging. Messaging is critical to apps, right? Obviously. Um, so this new offering, the Apache Pulsar support, you know, there's the usual suspect. You've got this message listener abstraction. We got a similar thing for this. We've got a Pulsar template. Uh, you know, Spring has templates for everything. The JMS template was the original one. Batch and record-based, um, you know, Pulsar listeners. Uh, there's, you know, Automatic message acknowledgement, if you want to do that, or you can do manual um, 
acknowledgement as well. You know, you can do manual record batch, et cetera. And there's auto configuration, right? So it's, it's still early days yet. What do you know about this? What do you, what can you tell us? Cause I, I don't know much, but I know that Apache Pulsar is amazing, you know, built-in geo replication, uh, multi-tenancy capabilities, uh, separation of design, like you just said, separation of distributed, sorry, separate separation of storage logs and uh, the serving layer, compute, whatever. Well, yeah, I've been, uh, I'm on a, a shared Slack channel with Sobe and we've been, we have one engineer helping yeah, and I've been testing it, just writing an app right. and it's been going really well. It's very nice too, is like, how's this? And they're like, Oh, change that. I'm like, oh, thanks. It's nice to have yeah. someone someone fix your sample apps. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah, we've been evolving. And it's it worked 99% out of the box first try. And I'm nice. like, no way. And then I found a couple of cases that were going back going, okay, maybe we should change this. Maybe it's a better way to optimize this. I brought my friend David in. He uh, literally wrote the book on Pulsar. He's uh, wrote the one? book. Yeah. So, and he's like, oh, you should use it this way because our library has been changing pretty frequently as more people are in it going, why don't you add this? Why don't you add that? You know how <laughs> that never yeah. happens this spring. No one asks for more stuff. Oh, really? <laughs> cleaner. No, that never happens. Never. No. Hmm. But never. yeah, so I, I moved, I wrote an app. So we didn't have this at Spring I.O. in Spain. Right. So I took just the Pulsar Java library and combined it with Spring, and it worked good enough. And I'm like, oh, it's okay. Yeah. I mean, and there was also, there's been some other projects out there that people have tried. They just weren't official. So there was a couple other ways to do it. And there's actually a reactive Spring uh, Pulsar project coming out now, too. And wow. that I tested that. That works, too. But uh, this one with Sobe, the one thing we found is, yeah, if you connect to something that's using no authentication or simple authentication, worked every time, really easy. And I'm like, well, let me connect to a more secure cloud instance with SSL and OAuth. Right. And then we had some problems that we had to figure out, but we've got past those. <laughs> but they gave us some ideas going, well, should we do authentication different? So we've been going back and forth. They've been fixing something. I'll try it with my use case. I'm like, okay, that's working. So it's, it's looking good. It may be out in a week or two. Cool. It, it depends. Yeah. There's there's a, a design decision on what's the best way to do authentication because the Pulsar Java authentication libraries are kind of funky. Because yeah. it, it, we, we always err on the flaw of giving you every possible way to do something and right. making things extensible everywhere. Well, you know, we don't have uh, any opinionated interfaces. So it makes it like, well, how do we add a, a default uh, opinion on top of this? <laughs> so that, that's been the decisions going back and forth, but code's been, it's easy. <laughs> it's so much, the, the size of my old code that I manually wrote and then the new one, I put a couple things in applications YAML and my code is now one class. I've got, uh, you know, uh, a Pulsar listener and I've got uh, I, a one template. Right. That's it. And it does schemas automatically. You just apply a, uh, a Java bean and now you have your all your fields you want. 
It's very so easy. It sounds like it's really coming together nicely. I, you know, this is, uh, I guess, I don't normally push people to try my thing at the end of the podcast, but I hope people will go out and try Spring for Apache Pulsar. Uh, but enough about me. Tim, I, 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 I tried taking notes um, when we started talking and it, I just couldn't keep up. So I'm going to go ahead and re-listen to this show. This has been one of those things where I haven't, I, I just haven't known what we're talking about for the whole hour. It's just been great. I learned so much from you today. Um, every minute was just like, oh, okay, I, I better. I got to connect some experts in the field there. Sorry, I mean, you talk to the Pino people, the Trino yeah. people. Uh, there's a bunch of people, Elastic. There's there's some uh, there's some community people in those areas. I could uh, the guy from Scylla. These are all people in the in that big ecosystem, and they are all touching Spring somehow. I would love to talk to them, but what I'm I guess what I'm trying to say is it's been a unique privilege to be able to talk to somebody like you who truly just gets the whole landscape, and you just boiled it down. I cannot cannot imagine how much it would have cost to hire a consultant like you to do what you just did for the last hour and a half for free. Uh, it would have been exorbitant. I really thank you for joining the show today. Um, are you on the internet? And if so, nope. do you want to be found? And if so, where are you? Uh, oh, am I on the internet? Um, yes. Uh, what's the best place to find me on the internet? Uh, I don't know, Twitter. Um, I guess maybe my main blog, but I don't know. I keep changing. I guess the easiest one is uh, pulsardeveloper.com, maybe. Might be the easiest. Okay. Because that links to all my stuff. So pulsar, so P U L S A R developer.com. Okay. And um, thank you very much. I appreciate you awesome. being on the show, my friend. Good, uh, good to see you. Uh, I mean, we, we didn't get to t in interact very much when we were at Pivotal because it was so early days and there was just so much to be done and nobody was it's busy, busy, busy. Oh, so and you've had a hell of a run since then. You've been in it all got busier. There's yeah. so much going on, man. There's so much in this system, but wow. I'll see you at spring one. I'm very excited to be talking there. That's going to be cool. Oh yeah. I can't wait. I can't wait for that. I'm see doing that. one talk with Sylvie and we're going to officially announce the, uh, the library and it should be awesome by then. And then yeah. some other talk, which is, some random pulsar thing. All right, that's December 2022 in San Francisco. Register now if you haven't for a, a spring one. And then also go to pulsardeveloper.com. And I'll have free stickers for people with cats on them. I want one. Thank you. Thanks. A Beautiful Podcast is produced by me, Josh Long. I do these podcasts because I believe that everything we do in software is for and made better by people. I want to hear from you. I'm josh at joshlong.com by email or at S-T-A-R-B-U-X-M-A-N on Twitter, where, of course, my direct messages are wide open. Do you have guest ideas, topic suggestions, feedback? Don't hesitate to reach out. If you like the show, then please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review, uh, as it really helps the show. I sampled music from Steve Combs's Them from Morning and Springtime and Steve Combs's Small Victory, both of which are licensed under a Creative Commons license. 
I'm trying to hire production assistants to make the production of this podcast easier. I want to make sure that we can add things like show notes and transcripts and, and just generally do more. If you would like to advertise on the show, then please reach out to me. Uh, and if you can't uh, or don't want to advertise but would like to otherwise support the show, then please consider supporting me at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Josh Long for as low as $4 a month. Thanks again. No harm came to any seasons in the making of this podcast.